there's something outside. What is that? This is Julie Wrench, your host of another exciting episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, talking old-timers with Thomas, the one, the only, Thomas Steenberg. How are you? I'm doing fine, my dear, doing fine, but still getting older. (laughs) Well, I, I think... Old and a certain age that you are is just a state of mind, Thomas. That's what I keep telling myself for the last 10 years. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We, we refuse to grow old. That's right. I start so, coming uh, backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so how's everything so, up in B.C. these days? Well, we're finally getting some spring weather. We've been having it. It's been unusually cold and rainy. But uh, now it seems like we're getting into spring condition. We just get this COVID crap over with. Mm. Yeah, that would that would be a good day. We we've mm. had some pretty rainy weather here too. A lot of flooding in the south and tornadoes oh. and dear lord, all we need next is a hurricane. Maybe knock on wood, but dear lord. But everything's moving along, moving along here. Um, Well, tonight I have a very special guest, someone that I really admire very much, who I know um, has really brought forth a lot in the the cryptid field and the community, Mr. Ken Gerhard. Now, a lot of you may be familiar with him. He's a very recognized cryptozoologist, book author, and lecturer. And, you know, he's traveled around the world searching for evidence of mysterious creatures, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, Chupacabra, Mothman, just to name a few. Um, I know he's written six books on different subjects of cryptids. He's been on numerous TV shows, including Missing in Alaska, Monster Quest, Ancient Aliens, American Unearthed, The Unexplained, Legend Hunters. I mean, it just goes on. Um, He's been on History Channel, Travel Channel, Discovery, Animal Planet, Sci-Fi, National National Geographic. I mean, what has this man not done, right? Um, He's just on the shoulders of Ken Gerhard. Yes, on the shoulders of giants. Here we are with Ken Gerhard. Welcome to the show. Hey guys. It's uh, wonderful to be here with you. Uh, thanks again for having me on. It's it's definitely an honor and a pleasure. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Real good. Yeah? Well, I'm doing just fine, yeah. Ken. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Thomas. It's good to talk mm-hmm. to you, my friend. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you, you guys were just talking a little bit before the show started how you met back in 2005. Yeah, well, that, was, that was a big deal for me, meeting Thomas. <laughs> I had read his book, so. That's so Ken cool. was wearing a, uh, I, I, wore, I, he just mentioned he was wearing a hat with a skull on it. It was not really a cowboy hat, as I recall. It was kind of like a black leather thing, kind of like the hat uh, Blackburn wears, isn't it? Yeah, Lyle and I, we we, are, we have very similar looks. A lot of people <laughs> remark about that, but uh, yeah. you know, we're kind of we're kind of brothers from a different mother, so it, it kind of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> wow, that's so cool. I remembered. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody remembers Ken's trademark hat. That's for sure. <laughs> so Ken, you've been doing this for a long time. What? Um, what exactly got you inspired into, you know, investigating everything and getting involved in cryptids in general? Well, what I always tell people is that when I was growing up, uh, my parents were Canadian and I grew up in Minnesota, but my dad was a forestry professor, so he spent a lot of time in the outdoors and I loved animals, had a lot of uh, kind of creepy pets that I collected, salamanders and snakes and things. And I also loved monster movies. And so when I first heard about Bigfoot when I was about eight or nine years old, it was just, it blew my mind, you know, that there could really be this, basically a, an unknown animal and also a monster in many respects. So it kind of checked all the boxes for me. So I started studying this stuff when I was a kid. But what I tell people is that my, my great advantage was having a mother who was very supportive of my interest and she also loved to travel. And uh, so she took me all over the world and my family traveled all over the world, and I had an opportunity to, even as a kid, investigate legends of, of creatures in other countries, uh, Africa, Australia, South America. And uh, when I was 15 years old, my family vacationed at Loch Ness, and so I attempted my first field work when I was 15 at Loch Ness, Scotland, with a, with a movie camera and interviewing people and stuff. So it's been a lifelong passion of mine, but I certainly never planned to to try to make a, a career out of it. Uh, but about oh. 20 years ago, I became super active in field work and I wrote, started writing books and uh, I got lucky and got on a, a travel channel show. And so everything just kind of took off for me. So I feel very blessed. Wow. That's so exciting that you were over there when you're 15 doing uh, your own little documentary, if you will, on the Loch Ness Monster. How cool is that? Yeah, that was definitely a very that was an epiphany for me, and uh, it's all come mm. full circle because my newest book is about the Loch Ness monster. So it's taken me almost a lifetime to write it, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I love investigating all, you know all of the cryptids. Obviously, the Loch Ness monster, other lake monsters, Bigfoot and Sasquatch, and other mystery hominids, and uh, you mentioned some others, flying cryptids like thunderbirds, mysterious big cats. It, it all fascinates me, so uh, I, I investigate all of those things. Now, have you ever ha had a encounter with a cryptid yourself? Well, every, everyone asks me that, of course, having spent a lifetime looking, but I've never actually had a sighting so that I can say 100% uh, you know, of any cryptid or unknown animal, but 
Um, I am convinced that I've heard Bigfoot or Sasquatch vocalize at least a few occasions. And one time in particular, we were very close to one, I, I think. We, uh, I was with some other researchers in North Texas at a remote location where there had been some recent sightings. And uh, just after the sun went down, we heard and recorded something grunting at us from the brush. It sounded just like an ape. It was very loud and powerful, mm. very primate-like sound. We couldn't see it because it was heavy brush, and uh, we couldn't flush it out. We tried. We got to a higher vantage point and shined a spotlight down, and we saw some eye shine reflecting back at us, kind of a greenish-yellow color. And then throughout, we, we made camp, and throughout the course of the night, we heard something moaning at us kind of a wailing sound, which was really creepy. And then uh, finally mm. the following morning, we made our way through the brush where we'd heard this thing initially, and we found some deep human-like footprints and uh, found a number of turtle shells, big, big turtle shells that had been torn in, in, uh, torn in half, top to bottom, no, no meat or flesh, just the shells kind of thrown into a, a little pile. So that was kind of weird. I, I can't think of anything capable of ripping a turtle mm. shell in half. So um, so all of that, to me, that one night was the most convincing thing I ever experienced where I thought, you know, that had to be a, a, a Sasquatch. I, I couldn't think of any other explanation for the vocalizations and all the other evidence that we found. So, Wow. So that was in Texas. You know, Texas has a lot of, of sightings, and so, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you guys hadn't run across one that night. Well, we were in a good spot. Like I said, we had good information. And, um, yeah, Texas is uh, – this might surprise a lot of people, but in, in terms of the United States, Texas ranks probably about seventh in terms of the number of sightings. Mm -hmm. I mean, you obviously have uh, Oregon, California, Washington, one, two, three. Um, then you have uh, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio. And then I think Texas is, is behind right all of those, and then Michigan's up there too. Mm -hmm. So uh, we do have a lot of sightings in Texas. Most of them are in the eastern part of the state, not out west where it's flat and sparse. But if you go to the eastern mm -hmm. part of Texas, a lot of people don't realize it's very much like Louisiana, Florida, and the deep south. It's, you know, deep bottoms and heavy thickets and pine uh, forests and things like that. So, Well, it borders on Arkansas and the Sulphur River Bottoms area there, too, where the Polk Monster was made famous, correct? Absolutely. You nailed it. Mm -hmm. that, that Four Corners area with southeast Oklahoma, southwest Arkansas, northeast Texas, northwest Louisiana, that Four Corners area has the highest concentration of sightings right there mm -hmm. in the south, I should say. Yeah, Interesting. Now, what is your um, – I know you probably – you've got so many, but what what is – tell us a, a couple of your most um, – I know you take reports and, and you go to different places where the sightings have been and you you know, talk to people and you go around. So what, what is your favorite um, expeditions? Is it the Bigfoot or is it uh, – creatures in the sky that you know the large creatures flying or i mean what's your favorite topic well it's it's really hard to choose i've uh you know i've really loved many of the adventures that i've had the opportunity to go on many expeditions um but i do like to talk about 
my excursions into Central America to search for mystery hominids similar to Sasquatch. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, the Bigfoot sightings and activity not only range throughout Canada and North America, but they also go down into Mexico and some of the mountainous regions there and all the way down into Central America to countries like Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, El Salvador, and so forth. And you have a number of different local names, but I mounted uh, two expeditions down to the nation of Belize in 2004, 2006 to search for something called the Sisamito, which is basically a soft watch. If you listen to the local descriptions, they say it's just a big upright gorilla that lives up in the mountains. And um, so uh, those expeditions were pretty cool. I got to visit the Chickabull jungle in the uh, in the Maya Mountains, I got to the Coxcomb Jaguar Sanctuary where there have been some Sisamito sightings, and I, I interviewed some of the local Maya people that had had experiences. And um, there are two, there are actually two types. There's a bigger type called the Sisamito, and then there's the smaller type which is called the Duende, which which the natives, uh, the Maya people say, are these little dwarf, hairy dwarf-like, man-like creatures. Uh, that live, you know, in some of those areas too. And so they kind of differentiate. So we did find some footprints, small footprints that were human-shaped in a remote area where there had been Duende sightings. And uh, they weren't the greatest footprints, but they had a distinct human-like shape with a very pointy heel, which is one of the characteristics that are, that's related to the Duende, pointy heels. And um, so that was exciting, you know, but um, I, I love the jungle, you know, I, lo- I love going deep into that. I've been to the Amazon jungle, uh, Central American jungles. Uh, there's just something, you, you get this kind of Indiana Jones vibe when you're out there and you're, <laughs> you know, you're crawling over ancient Maya pyramids and there are monkeys flying over your head and, <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah, I, I I guess that just kind of pops into my head because uh, I've, I've really enjoyed my excursions down down to those areas. Well, definitely. Wow. Thomas, I think you might have had some questions for Ken in regards to some of his travels. Absolutely. Now, even though I've concentrated my life research on the Sasquatch, or Bigfoot as you call it, in the United States alone, I'm interested in Ken's attitude and some or opinion on some of the other cryptids he's looked into. Now, your latest book is called The Essential Guide to the Loch Ness Monster and Other Aquatic Cryptids. Is that right, Ken? That's correct. That's my new one. Just, just came in, out. In your uh, opinion, what is the Loch Ness Monster? I assume you don't think it's a plesiosaur or something like that. No, I don't. In fact, I do put forward a... Uh, a theory in the book, which is not my theory. It's been around for years, but it's kind of gotten uh, put along the way, you know, put to the wayside compared to some, some other theories. But I think it's a mammal, Thomas. And mm-hmm. specifically, I think it is, uh, if it exists, it is descended from an ancient line of whales that were very snake-like in form, known as archaeocetes or bacillosaurs. And they lived about 40 million years ago during the Oligocene epoch, and they, don't, they didn't look like modern whales at all. I mean, they probably had similar skin and, and so forth, but, uh, and, and, a, and a bilibate tail, but they were very long and serpentine, 
And uh, so, of course, believe that they went extinct like 25 million years ago. But if you look at the, the physical descriptions of the Loch Ness Monster, and what people need to understand is that only a very small percentage, about 15%, describe the long neck and the small head that people relate to a plesiosaur. So 85% of the sightings of Nessie are basically a giant hump or several large humps, whale-like in appearance, rolling over the, the surface of the water, the smooth skin. And uh, when you look at the, the water temperatures in Loch Ness, very cold, it makes more sense that you'd have a mammal there. And also people describe these things as Nessie is moving up and down, undulating up and down, which is a mammalian characteristic, not a reptile or a fish. Those go side to side. So... Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I know it sounds wild. It's a, a prehistoric snake-like whale living in a lake. Um, but And I don't just relate that to Loch Ness alone. I also relate it to Lake Okanagan with Ogopogo, with Lake Champlain uh, here, in, here in the east. Uh, so I think there's a number of Nessie-like animals that are living in some of these lakes and also in the ocean. And I think, you know, if they exist, they must be descended from these these ancient whales. I I I I, I probably uh, probably agree with you, assuming that the animal does exist, and that was my next question. Do you think the same thing could be an explanation for Ogopogo and Lake Okanagan here in BC? Absolutely, and um, you know, again, very similar descriptions with the uh, with the Ogopogo um, to Nessie. Very similar type of lake. They're about the same temperature, same similar depths. And, and makeups, same types of fish species inhabit both, salmonid fishes. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at some of the more remarkable Ogopogo encounters, in fact, there was a woman named Barbara Clark uh, back in the 1970s. She was a young lady growing up near Okan uh, on Lake Okanagan, and she actually claims that she brushed up a uh, alongside of Ogopogo. She was swimming, and this mm -hmm. thing came alongside of her and brushed up against her leg, and her exact description was that it was a serpentine-looking whale. That's what she said it looked like to her. So, so that's kind of compelling. Mm-hmm. Now, I've ordered your book. i got a special store here. I, I uh, hard to find books, especially those uh, that come from the United States. But it'll probably take two or three months to get it because of COVID. That's the excuse they're using. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for ordering that. That's awesome. That's yeah, no no problem. I'm, I also want to ask you about your opinion on the beast of Chevadon, which was a strange animal that was killing a lot of people in, in uh, southern France. Uh, I think it was the 1640s. Uh, I know you've done done some looking into that. Um, what do you think was the beast of Chevadon? Yeah, that's a great, great one. Um, I was very blessed in 2008. I got to travel to France um, for the History Channel, and I investigated the Beast of Gévaudan. And uh, it's a very, very famous legend in France. It's like France's version of, of Bigfoot, basically. But it's uh, described as like a large, like a wolf, but much larger, with uh, pointy ears, a long tail, and... Um, reddish color and a stripe down its back is what most of the eyewitnesses uh, described. Uh, it was seen in 1764 through 1767 for about a three-year period. 
and it attacked and killed upwards of 60 to 100 people. So it was a very aggressive. It went on a killing spree, and uh, you can imagine it created a lot of panic and hysteria throughout France for, for about a three-year period. Now, ultimately, there was an animal that was shot in 1767 by a guy named Jean Chastel, and uh, that's when the, the killing stopped. So it was believed that he, he actually shot this creature. Um, the remains, unfortunately, have mysteriously vanished. So um, after this thing went on tour for a few days and was rotting and smelling bad, they kind of <laughs> discarded it. But um, mm-hmm. ba- based on the research we did for the TV show, um, I think one of the really compelling theories is that the Beast of Jevodon may have been a hyena. Um, a large, wow. a large hyena. Yeah, mm-hmm. hyenas look very wolf-like to most people, but they don't. Most people don't realize that hyenas are actually feliforms. They're more closely related to cats than canids or dogs. They just look similar, but mm-hmm. unlike canids, they're very. They're not pack hunters necessarily, but they they can be. But they're very aggressive, hyper aggressive. They attack a lot of people in Africa and Asia on a regular basis. They have a very powerful jaws, of course, capable of breaking bones and things. And, um, it, you know, it would have been unusual but not impossible for an escaped hyena or a trained hyena of some kind to have been running around southern France in the 1760s. So, yeah, the, um, that, the elites, the, uh, the aristocracy quite often had exotic animals that they would release or just get rid of or whatever, and they turn around and survive the best they can. Uh, yes. and, it wouldn't, and, of course, their attitude towards the peasant population was, <laughs> so be it. Uh, if it kills, it kills. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, wasn't there also two animals killed? Didn't the king send along someone who shot a large wolf? And for a while there, they thought that was a beast, but the killings continued. Yeah, that's true. They brought in... Um about a year into the, or really just months into the killings, uh, King Louis the uh, Fourteenth brought in uh, professional wolf hunters to try to kill this beast, and they did end up bagging a couple of very large wolves. Uh, one was called the Wolf of Chazay, and they, they were huge wolves, and, uh, but the killings didn't stop after these wolves were killed. So it was at that point assumed that, that they hadn't actually killed the beast, that they were just, you know, guessing. So... Um, but there and were the a lot of who killed liked, around that time, yeah. And and the fellow who likely did kill it later on, there's no record of what happened to the carcass after that, is there? No, no, not at all. Now, yeah, when I, we sounds... were in France, we were shown some foot casts that were supposedly taken uh, that were wolf, very wolf-like, but just frigging enormous, uh, much larger than any wolf print I've ever seen. So I, I don't know if those were authentic or, or not and you know they were very old. But were they uh, hyena that, was, like? that was interesting. Yeah. Were they uh, hyena they were more like? wolf like than they were more wolf like than hyena like the, the cast oh. that we were shown. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, except, who knows? Yeah, except for the tail it always always sounded like a hyena to me, but uh, who knows? Also knows a lot of poor people died. Yeah. Yeah, no, but you you hit the nail on the head, Thomas. There were a lot of rich people, noblemen that that had these exotic animals, 
And don't forget that the French were colonials, and they went to a lot of countries and colonized a lot of countries that had hyenas in Asia and Africa. So mm-hmm. they had access to hyenas. So um, very interesting. So I don't know. It it, it, it mm. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does. It's a fascinating mystery, and of course, a lot of people tend to associate it with, you know, the werewolf legend or the loup garou, as it's, it's known in French Canada and France. But uh, it sounds to me like it, it more than likely was uh, an exotic hyena that was trying to survive on its own, and people were easy targets. Mm. Yes, and it was a very rough winter. This was like one of the yeah. worst blizzards in the history of France. So, you know, a lot of animals may have been desperate. Mm-hmm. So you're saying the, the one creature killed up to 60 people? Well... I think that there's, and I think I, I didn't explain this properly. Hyena was probably the main culprit, I think. But as with a lot of cryptids, you have these cases of what I refer to as composite identity, meaning that there are a lot of different things that are kind of being lumped together. So, for example, okay. at the time the beast was on its rampage, you may have had some wolf attacks. You probably had some, uh, there's a theory that was a serial killer, that maybe a guy took advantage of the killings and started killing people on his own. There's a possibility that a lot of the the attacks were just hyped up and used as a governance tool by the the aristocracy to kind of scare people and keep the peasants in in line, so to speak. Because this is right before the French Revolution, keep in mind. There was a lot Mm -hmm. of unrest in France at that time. So it wouldn't have been impossible for the, the Roman Catholic Church or the or King Louis or someone to basically, you know, hype up the the beast hysteria, you know, because they're the presumably the only ones that can p- protect people, right? Hey, if you want us to protect right. you from this killer beast, you know, do what we say, kind of thing. I don't know. It's just a, but so yeah, I think there was probably a lot. I don't know if it actually killed sixty people, Julia. That's a good question, but. Uh, that that's what's been documented, anyway. So they documented, okay? Because that's that's wow, that's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and on another subject, the uh, Mothman of Point Pleasant, Pennsylvania, there back in the late 1960s. Did you ever come up mm-hmm. with any idea on the identity of what this could be? Well, I have written a book about Mothman, and I've investigated. Mm-hmm both the Mothman in, in Point Pleasant, but I've also investigated creatures like Mothman down in Mexico. There have been sightings um, here in Texas where I live and, you know, in other places. Um, honestly, Thomas, I think, well, there's two ways to look at it. If the Mothman was a, an actual flesh and blood creature, it probably didn't match the descriptions that it's now being attributed to because the physical descriptions are just too weird and they don't fit into the, the mm-hmm. paradigm of zoology. But there are some Mothman eyewitnesses that swore that what they saw was just a giant bird. In fact, for months and mm-hmm. months before the name Mothman was invented by the media, if you look at the original newspaper articles, they call it the Mason County Bird. That was the original name for the Mothman. Mm-hmm. So some people thought it might be more like a Thunderbird type of creature if you put any uh, – Credence in these these accounts of giant birds that have these 15, 20 foot wingspans. You know, the Native Americans have, have been, you know, traditions of, about these things for centuries. So that's one theory. But 
I really think that the Mothman phenomenon, the way it's been presented, seems to me not, not to be a cryptozoological mystery so much as something in the supernatural realm. And uh, mm-hmm. admittedly, I'm not a supernatural researcher. I don't fancy myself as a ghost hunter or a par- paranormal kind of guy. I have friends that do that. But the physical descriptions don't line up with anything in the natural world. The behavior patterns are completely outside of the animal kingdom. There are a lot of other weird aspects to the story when you look into it, men in black and UFOs and hauntings and all kinds of stuff. It's a really complex Mm -hmm. and weird phenomenon, um, but similar around the world. Um, And so I don't know. I I, I tend to view the Mothman as more of a metaphysical construct, something, if it exists, that's not an animal, if that makes sense. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's something probably beyond our understanding. A strange, a strange mystery, that's for sure. I was wondering, I was, some people say that the sightings in Point Pleasant stopped after the Silver River Bridge disaster. Do you know if that is true, or did they continue? They slowed down in frequency for sure, but they didn't stop. I've interviewed nope. people that have had sightings since then. In fact, there's a gentleman named John Hypes, he and his wife saw it in 2011, just outside of Point Pleasant, perched on an old bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are recent sightings here and there, but nothing that compares to that flap, pardon the pun, of the late 1960s, starting in uh, November of 66 and going on for about a year until the, uh, the tragedy of the bridge collapsed. There were just a, an enormous amount of sightings. And again, not just Mothman, but there were a lot of UFO sightings over Point Pleasant. There were a lot of weird things that were going on all around the area at that time. Excellent. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, the Chupacabra mystery, that started off in, uh, oh, I think the early 90s in the in, uh, um Oh, what's that? What's Puerto Rico. Not a, uh, yeah, Puerto Rico. And it yeah. basically translated into goat sucker. Now, has that sort of evolved and changed shape over the years into other things? Well, that's a question I get asked quite a bit. It's very confusing to people. I, I really think the chupacabra is more another case of composite identity, that you have ah, okay. a lot of different things that are being labeled chupacabras. Now, the original creature that was reported from Puerto Rico in the 1990s was really weird looking, kind of like the Mothman. It didn't, you know, you're talking about a three foot tall goblin-like creature on its hind legs with big eyes and uh, spikes going down its back, reptilian features. doesn't really fit with anything in the natural world. And of course, it was blamed for all these mysterious vampire-like livestock killings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first chupacabra we ever heard of, the goat sucker from Puerto Rico. But uh, the, the animals that I've investigated here in Texas that have been called chupacabras are merely grotesque-looking canids or, or dogs, coyotes, wolves, feral dogs that have a mostly hairless skin. Uh, they have very tough kind of leathery skin. They have strange teeth, long Fangs that, but they they're, they've been DNA tested and examined, and they're all canids. But they were they've also been called chupacabras because some people have also suggested that they might be drinking the blood of small farm animals. But there's no evidence of that. 
And then if you go into Mexico, there are accounts of wind chupacabras, like giant vampire bats that swoop down, and uh, so on and so forth. So you get different archetypes around Latin America. So the bottom line is I always tell people that the name chupacabra, keep in mind, is not a physical description. It's a behavioral description, Mm -hmm. something that drinks blood. So in that respect, Mm. it's kind of like uh, the name Chupacabra is kind of like a Latin catch-all name for a vampire or a monster, but I don't think it's easy to, to explain or, or classify as one single thing. I think there are several different creatures, animals, and things that are kind of being lumped together and called Chupacabras. I actually had a similar theory about the uh, Sasquatch for many years because – I assume that a lot of people in the eastern part of the continent were seeing something that was actually a little different than what's in the Pacific Northwest in the United States and Canada. But because of the early, uh, the early researchers just sort of lumped them in with Sasquatch, you know, the late John Green, the late Ray Hinden, and stuff like that, and where, in fact, we may be dealing with something completely different. Yeah, so I'm curious, Thomas, have you ever heard of any uh, sightings of these little foot creatures, like basically pygmy-sized Sasquatches that are only about three feet tall? And I'm not yes, talking about have, juveniles. They're, I mean, not, like, they're yeah. not common, and, and people usually assume they're looking at a young one. Right. And that's, yeah, that's, yeah. That's like, uh, well, the more, one of the more recent ones, just a few years ago, a fellow who wants to remain anonymous, we just call him Monkey Man, <laughs> was driving off <laughs> the west side of Harrison Lake at the 12-kilometer point, where he saw, and that's what he told us. He told us, my late friend Bill Miller, uh, he said, someone dropped off a damn monkey. And he said, what do you mean by monkey? Well, he said, someone dropped off a monkey. But if you knew this man, he was a, a poor guy who had to work hard all his life, never went beyond grade five, had to leave school to take care of his aging mother. And he just worked hard all his life. And he was going, he was actually driving up the lake to do a, a night watchman job at a logging site somewhere. And he saw this thing at the 12-kilometer point. And after we talked to him a couple of times and stuff, uh, Bill finally said, geez, man, why, why do you not think it was a Sasquatch? He said, because it was only three feet high. It wasn't eight feet, nine feet tall. And we said to him, do you think polar bears are 1,000-pound killing machines <laughs> at birth? Very little things you can put in your pocket. <laughs> and it was almost like a light bulb went off over his head. <laughs> it just never wow. occurred yeah, he called it a monkey, but to this guy, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, chimpanzee, gorilla, orangutan, it's all monkey to him, and because of its yeah. small size, he assumed. So a lot of people have reported smaller creatures, but assume, they assume it's, generally assume that they're younger versions of the adults. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that, that does explain some of those cases, but specifically I've spoken to Native American people in Alaska that uh, they, they have claimed that they, they, they talk about Sasquatch or what they call the hairy man, but they say they're also these little people that are covered with hair. And uh, they have a number of names up in Alaska. They're known as the, uh, uh, the Anukins, the Urchin Rock, uh, Jinxiox, and so on and so forth. And I've also heard similar stories from Native American people in, in North Dakota. Yeah, they call them the Mamaguese and uh, yeah. so forth. So. They also have a name that basically translates into the otter people. <laughs> yeah, Kushtika, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
Yep, there are, but the, they're mostly in the, the, the panhandle or of the Alaska area in the very northern regions of uh, British Columbia mainland. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I just think that's interesting. Sometimes you run across those. It's typically the, the, the indigenous people that have those stories. But mm-hmm. uh, they, they're very sincere. They're very sincere about them, you know, that these mm-hmm. things exist. Mm-hmm. It's part of their oral history and tradition. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can tell you that here in North Carolina, they have um, some of the natives back from, gosh, I, I know that they were here about 13,000 years ago. And the stories go back that far about, they, they called them the little people of the Appalachian area. Mm. You know, they're supposed to be maybe three feet tall, um, not so much hair covered, but... Um, more more naked like you know what i mean um yeah i got you mm-hmm. but they, they definitely um was through the tradition uh all the way down to just a few hundred years ago at the um town creek indian area they call it the town creek indian area um there were several different tribes there and that was in central north carolina and and all from the central north carolina to the west uh, where the Appalachians are, there's a lot of reports about the little people. Yeah, I've heard those stories in North Carolina too. I was there a couple years ago, and then, in fact, a native woman, I, I heard a native woman tell a story that a little person had run into their house, and they were so terrified that they set the house on fire and burned it down because they didn't know what else to do. So that was kind of a crazy story. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Do you know what area? Uh, it was up near Littleton because I was doing a, a okay. Madoc Mountain State Park kind of up in that area. Wow. Yeah. But who knows? Amazing. Ken, do you know of any other cryptos that you've looked into that are uh, just absolutely strange? That they're they're not Sasquatch, they're not they're just something completely unique. But there's um, a long history of it in a particular area. Well, it depends on your definition of strange, I suppose, Thomas. But this, this is kind <laughs> of exciting. Okay, well, this is exciting, and you may have something to add to this as well. So this July, I'm traveling with some other researchers and a team up to Bluff Creek, California. Uh-huh. We're going to be camped very close to the, to the film site, but we're actually searching for evidence of giant salamanders. So you've probably oh, yeah. heard wow. of the Trinity giant salamanders have been searched for up there for many decades. People have claimed to have seen them, and uh, Tom Slick, Funded an expedition to search for them in the fifth. Well, the, the Pacific Northwest expedition was charged with looking for giant salamanders when they weren't looking for Bigfoot. So, um, but yeah. yeah, I've got a team of people, and uh, we're working with the Bluff Creek Project up there. A guy named Jamie Wayne, and I'm bringing biologists and, and salamander experts, and we're gonna see if there's any evidence of these. Now, when people say giant, because there are some big salamanders up there that get to be about a foot long, the Pacific giant salamanders, but we're talking about salamanders that have been described as being anywhere from four to five feet long or longer, which is the size of mm. the, the giant Japanese and Chinese salamanders, which are a known species in Asia that are huge, the biggest amphibians in the world. 
the habitat is very similar to Japan and China. You've got these fast-running cold mountain streams, uh, which these giant salamanders like. They're called cryptobranchs. And uh, who knows? We're, we're going to have some fun with that. So hopefully we can find some evidence. Or, or, but I don't know, Thomas, have you ever, you've heard some of these giant salamander stories in the Pacific Northwest? Here in British Columbia around Cultus Lake and Pitt Lake, yeah, that's known as the British Columbia giant salamander. A salamander reported to be the size of a Cayman crocodile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So they extend up that far for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's always a, been uh, kind of an interesting – sorry, go ahead. Probably next to Sasquatch and Ogopogue, which is probably the third most common reported cryptid in British Columbia, yeah. Wow. wow. Maybe we're looking in the wrong spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's always been kind of the, the giant salamander motif has always been kind of a, a sideline of, of Bigfoot and Sasquatch research going back to the, as you know, like I said, the Pacific Northwest expeditions and way back then. Um, Ivan Sanderson wrote about the ones up there in British Columbia. They called them the Pit Lake alligators, right? They didn't always call them salamanders. Hey, yeah. Sometimes they called them. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and uh, I know my my friend John Kirk has also collected some reports up there. So, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating mystery. But it's you know it's not as weird as some people might like. You know what's weird about a giant salamander? But if you were in the Pacific Northwest of of North America and you and you found a salamander that was five feet long, that would be pretty extraordinary. That would be a monumental oh, zoological yeah. discovery if these things exist. So. Wow, that's going to be epic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I've never been to the uh, to the Patterson-Gimlin film site either, so this will be my first time ever in all my life. I've been oh, wow. like Mecca, and I'll finally finally get well, to visit we, that as well. When you see the big tree, do me a favor. Look on the back side of it and let me know if my little tin, uh, tobacco tin flat is still nailed to the back of it. I put it up there in 1983. Oh, cool. I'll look for that. Okay. <laughs> do you want me? To, do you want me to mail that wow, back to you if I if I find it? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Let me know it's still there. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah, I actually put wow, my name on there. That was marker pen. I'm sure it's gone since 1983. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was there in 2003 again, and and it wasn't there. But I didn't really look that hard. So. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just kind wondering. Kind of always wondered. Hmm. Yeah. I said the site was kind of rediscovered back around that time, right? It was the 25th anniversary, and that's when people started going back there and kind of poking around again. And uh, so that, I guess that's when you were up there. Well, Ken, you won't recognize it because it's no longer clearing. It's all filled with 60-foot new growth trees. Okay. I think I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. You just get down the Bluff Creek in that area where they walked on off the uh, 12N13, you turn right, and as soon as you get to an area known as the Bowling Alley, that straight as an arrow, that area to the north that's filled with big trees now is the film site. You can't make it. They'll show it to you. They, they've done great work down there, the, uh, the Bluff Creek project. Yeah, I think this is their yeah. annual pilgrimage. They uh, they go and collect a lot of the trail cameras that they've had up over the year, the course of the mm-hmm. year. So, is Stephen going? going to be there? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Stephen when Wayne, are you Stephen going? Wayne. 
uh, Rowdy Kelly, Robert Leiderman. I think those are the main guys that, that kind of run the show down there. Yeah. So. Now, July, third weekend of July, second weekend of July is when we're, we'll, we'll be up there. So. Yep, that sounds cool. Sounds great. It's a beautiful area. It's even more remote was now than it was in 67. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing your pictures and, and uh, information from that, Ken. Wow. Yeah, and don't go anywhere without a camera on you, Ken. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> got to be at the ready. You gotta, if you have to get out of your one... tent at 3 in the morning to go in behind a big tree, take your camera with you. Always. <laughs> Good advice. I'll have it with me at all times. Uh, uh, listen, before before we run out of time here, Ken, I would appreciate for our listeners if you would list the books you have published in their title. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so my new one, as you mentioned, is The Essential Guide to the Loch Ness Monster and Other Aquatic Cryptids. Uh, last year I published The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, which I'm honored to say is, has been – uh, gotten a really good reception. Um, before that, I wrote a book called A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts, which covers the Beast of Javadan and Chupacabra and a lot of the other things we talked about, giant salamanders. And um, I've also written a book called Encounters with Flying Humanoids, Mothman, Man Birds, and Other Winged Beasts. And uh, I also wrote a book called Big Bird, which is just about, you know, the Thunderbirds and some of these giant winged cryptids that people have reported through the years. And now are these uh, books all put out by one publishing house or did you self-publish? Um, I self-published The Essential Guides, but uh, mm-hmm. the others are, are by, other, you know, been put out by other publishers. They're all available on Amazon, okay. although I think – and Counters of Flying Humanoids is out of print, unfortunately, so that one's a little harder to find. All righty. But thank you for bringing that up. Sweet. No problem. Yeah, definitely. So everybody needs to make sure they go online and get some books because those are really good read. And, I, yeah, that one um, essential guide to the, the Bigfoot that you wrote, I know um, tons of people who got that book. Well, thanks. I, what I tried to do, you know, you, this is this is apropos because of the title of your show, um, but I, I'm honored to be in the field and work alongside other dedicated Bigfoot researchers like you guys. And um, what I tried to do for the book was accumulate and combine all of the best information and the consensus opinions from from most of the, you know, the the, the people we've talked about the the pioneers like John Green and Rene DeHinden and Grover Krantz and all the Peter Byrne and all those guys, but also other researchers. But, you know, what I always tell people is there are a lot of things in the Bigfoot field that we don't agree on. Right. And that's understandable because none of us really know it's a lot of speculation and guesswork, but there are things that I think most investigators, serious investigators agree on. And I try to try to focus on a lot of those metrics, uh, if you will, you know, how big is a Sasquatch really? You know, what's the average height? What is the average weight? Let's talk about that. You know, we talk about the ecology. What do they eat? Where do they live? What do they look like? Um, 
where are the remains, you know, a lot of those questions. And I also addressed a lot of the sociological issues because you have things like hoaxing and uh, people that think that Bigfoot's popping in and out of dimensions and, you know, a lot of these other kind of conspiracies, a lot of those types of things that kind of muddy the waters sometimes. So, um, mm-hmm, uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. um, thank you for bringing it up. I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. And it, it, the book, like I said, it's not, it's not really some of it's my research, but a lot of it is, is the work of people like Thomas and some of the other pioneers in the field. So, Sweet. That's awesome. Thomas, do you have any so, other questions? Or are you... Well, I just wanted to say, Ken, it's great to talk to you, and uh, I'm glad yeah. you came on the show. And if you ever come up here to the Lower Man in British Columbia, give me a call, and I'd be happy to take you with me into the bush to do some looking around or take you if you'd like to go to some of the historic sites like the Ruby Creek incident, Chapman incident, or where Jocko was captured. I could take it to the exact spots. Well, that would be amazing, Thomas. I would, yeah. I, you know, it's definitely on my butt. Now that once I get Bluff Creek off the list, and that'll be my next target area is British Columbia. And, oh, wow. Um, beautiful country, and uh, my half sister actually lives in Tawasson, so I have kin up there in the in those areas too. So um, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take you up on that, sir. That sounds Roger good. That. Wow, what a combination that would be, the Thomas Ken show. Wow, I love <laughs> that idea. He has a better well, hat tell, than I'll I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that hat. Well, Ken, I tell you what, I'm, I'm, we're so happy that you came onto the show, and, and I know you're a busy person, and we appreciate your time for sure, and uh, just love love hearing you talk. I could do this for a couple more hours, but we are getting into the hour here where we have to close, but um, you know, keep us posted on what happens uh, in July over there in, in Bluff Creek. Yes, I will do. Well, thank you, Julie, Thomas. Great questions. Uh, thanks to everyone who listened in. And, uh, yeah, I had a blast. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Oh, yes, absolutely. We'd love it. Roger that, Kent. And we'll talk. And, Thomas, I will talk to you next month again for another exciting episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, Talking Old Timers with Thomas. This is your host. Julie Wrench, and we want to thank you all for listening in, and we will talk to you next month.